0: Um, Allison Josephs, Jew in the City, is with us live via telephone. Uh, she's, of course, uh, a member of the Nachum Siegel Network with amazing interviews every single Thursday at uh, 10 a.m. Eastern Time for us on the network for many, many years, and we thank her for that. Uh, but she has had uh, incredible influence in the area of um, presenting Orthodox Judaism in a proper and sensible fashion. She's done a million other things as well. We'll talk about some of the organizations and branches That she has started and continues to operate. Uh, But the reason I start with this whole topic on the representing um, uh, reality when it comes to Orthodox Judaism is because since the um, series came out, My Unorthodox Life, a Netflix series, which it seems in the Jewish community either people were like me and they completely ignored it. Or they were like some of my family members and they watched the entire thing three times the night it came out. <laughs> that, it seems like nobody was in between. <laughs> they were either addicted to it or had no interest in it. Uh, and I, I spoke on the air about you know not, not spending any time on it, which I'm not a criticism of those who did, frankly. Um, it just didn't strike my fancy, the whole concept. Uh, but since it came out, I don't know how many hundreds... Of contacts I have had with people through email, WhatsApp, in person, etc., who have asked me to get Jew in the City, Allison Josephs, on the air to discuss the series and this very topic, and now we finally have that opportunity. Allison Josephs, a pleasure to welcome you back to JM in the AM.
1: Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Glad that the fans want me here cuz I also <laughs> want to come on. So it's a good shit
0: I appreciate that. Yeah, they want to hear me ask the questions. They certainly want to hear your answers. I can tell you that much. Um by the way, this whole this whole category uh is only going to get bigger and bigger. It seems every time I turn around there's another trailer for yet another series or show or short film or documentary about the Orthodox community or a story involving the Orthodox community. So whatever experience you've just had in the aftermath of my unorthodox life, it looks like it's just going to be, you know, an even greater and greater experience coming up.
1: So first of all, this is actually the third time we've had such an experience because after one of us came out, um, I wrote about that. Uh, that was a reality show or like a documentary on Netflix following three people. people. Right. Um, our sign-ups went through the roof. I wrote an article um, that had a ton of views. When the pandemic started, working on nonprofit, I thought, well, probably my organization is going to end out because we'll put all efforts toward not dying from coronavirus. And then two weeks into the pandemic, my unorthodox life, sorry, unorthodox, the original, because right. there's so many now, unorthodox, <laughs> right. the original, came out, um, and we got more traffic in the two months that that came out than we got in all of 2019. Also, we got double the sign-ups after that for the entire year. So the truth is that because of those two previous experiences, we knew my unorthodox life was actually going to be a big deal, and we I prepared by writing an op-ed and, you know, getting different material ready. I got... Um, a, a, a media copy of the show to to watch before it drops. So we knew that it was the Olympics and the rest of the world. Um, a couple of weeks ago was the Olympics of Jew in the City. Right. What was
0: was this very different than the other two you mentioned? And I don't just mean in terms of content and in terms of storyline, but in terms of reaction and people's uh, uh, displeasure with it. Was it was it very similar to the other two, or this was way different?
1: Well, I think number one, um, there was a big issue that people took with this woman, Julia Hart, presenting her life um, as reality because she really co-opted a much more insular and right-wing life that she never actually had lived and called it her own. So I think just sort of the outrage about, um, you know, sort of telling a story that wasn't even true got a lot of people riled up and all the people that know her in real life, um, you know, were very upset about that. Also, she made these blanket statements that the yeshivish, haimish community are fundamentalists. And this is very dangerous to talk in such sort of inciting and general terms. Are there fundamentalists within those communities? Of course there are. There's fundamentalists probably within any right-wing community. um, But to lump the entire community and sort of uh, lump them and stamp them in such a negative light um, is really... So dangerous in yeah. the face of rising anti-Semitism, yeah. I would say with unorthodox, that wasn't claiming to be someone's exact life. It was sort of based on a true story, right. and so they took license for that. For um, you know the the
0: um, my unorthodox life?
1: Is, yeah, no, no, for for the one before that. Ah, right. um, for one of us, I have to say one of us and not this is us, because I All would right. get that confused for one of us. <laughs> um, it, and, and, and that one also, um, I know, I think that they did try to present a little bit more of a, a broader story, and there was also just so much sadness in, in the stories of uh, these three individuals they followed. Um, I think for this, because the nature of reality TV is meant to kind of like rile people up and they kind of made, um, you know, the Orthodox Jewish community as the enemy, right. um, it just felt, it really felt like backstabbing.
0: Did the series, and, and again, I didn't see it, and I'm not apologizing for that because, you know, I, I sometimes, you know, I these things are introduced and I start getting obsessed with it and I, and I, I too, is somebody, you know, who'll, who'll finish the whole series in a night and sometimes it just, you know, passes me by, but... In this series, is there any portrayal of the beauty of Orthodox life? Is there any positive takeaway that any observer would have about our community?
1: So here's the thing. Her ex-husband, who she you know describes as part of this crazy and extreme and anti-women community, comes off as such a mensch, um, and from what I've heard, he is a mensch. Um, her youngest son, who stays religious— um, First of all, she paints him also as some guy from Mea Shearim. He goes to a modern Orthodox high school. Uh, he also comes off as compassionate and loving to his mother and also just sort of coolly confident about who he is as a Jew. So those are some nice moments um, kind of within the show. Despite that, we've been tracking online comments because that's the kind of thing that we do. Right. And the feedback that you'll see from viewers are things like, She's crying to him that he shouldn't stop talking to girls. I think he picked this up at a mono orthodox sleepaway. Again, he did not go to uh, a camp uh, in uh, you know a Hasidic camp. I think he picked this up in mono orthodox camps and not talk to girls. And she's crying these big tears that he shouldn't become an extremist. And he's kind of sitting there on camera, very uncomfortable because there's the camera in his face and his mother's being very emotional. And you see online commenters saying things like, look at that creepy smile. He's been raised in his community to hate women and see them as second-class citizens, like kind of what a misogynist he is. So the thing is that although he comes off, uh, you know, sort of having conviction and being kind to his mother, because you hear so much of uh, Julia and one of her daughters especially talking about how the community was so awful to women and did such horrible things to them, Um, And she said, well, the younger daughter, Miriam, said she'd never played sports before. Meanwhile, I saw that she was, um, you know, a Jewish link hero of the week, a sports hero of the week. So, I mean, just the the, the lies that they told and the the tales that they spun, it just takes away the credibility. Mm. But what I will tell you is that I believe there is a kernel of truth to this story in that she was a woman that struggled. She did not feel like she had a voice. She did not feel like she had a choice. She did not feel like she was unconditionally loved. We see all those patterns at Makom, at our branch that deals with the ex, you know, Hasidic and ex Haredi population. Um, But it's not Judaism that does it, it's it's interpersonal relationships. It even can come from loving and hardworking parents, but there are subtle ways that a message may not be given over. And so I believe that there is that kernel of human struggle that she blames it on. Judaism and the Orthodox community, and it's really outrageous.
0: Allison Josephs is with us. By the way, uh, we should mention that in addition to um, your own site, obviously, and uh, uh, being outspoken um, regarding the comments, etc., TMZ has interviewed you about this, and that that, that gets a lot of traction, obviously, in this country and the world. Um, You represented us really well there, and you've written op-eds, as you mentioned on this topic as well so we are we are glad and we are lucky that we have you out there and others but you uh, primarily who are uh, really tackling this issue in a respectful manner uh and we appreciate that very very much uh joseph's jew in the city is with us um So do you sometimes try to – do you even spend any time – because I do spend time on this. You may not have the time to spend on this because you're busy deflecting comments online all day. Do do you sometimes wonder about the philosophy or the psychology behind all this? Do do you think that some people are simply – you know, happy people and others are very sad and hateful people, and no matter what the situation they'd be in, even if they were a part of a different religion than ours, they would simply resent the existence or the authority that's in in whatever other religion or system they're in?
1: So um, I actually do have to spend a lot of time thinking about this because, (laughs) um, you know, (laughs) here's the thing. We we recently reorganized the organization, so I just want to give a quick overview so my language makes sense. Um, The part of our organization that's the media arm that's essentially dealing with the reputational damage of these continuously bad stories and just sort of all the ideas that permeate society, like I grew up with as a secular but proud Jew, we've named that branch Keter to symbolize that we're restoring the Keter Shem Tov of the firm community and Orthodox Judaism. And that includes our original content, our pushback in media, media consulting, our all-star awards, our meet a Jew in the city, make a friend pop-up, all that falls under Keter. Our second branch, MACOM, and we've dropped the project of that now. We're just calling it MACOM. That is the space that we're dealing with the Julia Hearts. So it's not just the media blowback. It's also the people themselves and what does that look like to rehabilitate people. So I very much have to uh, understand what the psychology is. And this is what we've discovered over the last five years working with this population. And we have 250 members of MACOM now. At first, it was pretty clear that we had nearly all um, trauma survivors within Mako. Um, that was sort of something that we saw pretty early on—a high number of child sex abuse victims, and of course, other t- forms of trauma. What I've gotten into in the last several months—that I think is really the unifying theory—again, from everything that we've seen, and people that are not in Mako will tell me their stories different. And I, of course, have to say I've never heard every story or met every person, so everybody gets to tell their own story what we've seen as a big trend amongst hundreds of members is that there's this idea of something called childhood emotional neglect, which ends up causing lack of secure attachment. Now, I consider myself to be a pretty knowledgeable person and you know, understanding um, pretty well-known psychology terms, and I was really not familiar with this. When I thought of neglect, I would think of the child that wasn't fed, that wasn't closed, that you know, uh, wasn't taken care of. Childhood emotional neglect um, is a lack of things that are said or a lack of feelings that are given over. And it's very subtle. And again, it can come from loving parents. It can come from parents that are hardworking and trying their best. It often comes from parents who have these holes in their own upbringing and didn't realize they had the holes and then end up doing it to their children. Um, it affects. According to a psychologist of a book that I wrote, The Emotionally Absent Mother, um, by Jasmine Lee Corey, and this is sort of like become our second Bible at mach uh, <laughs> she talks about the fact that this study was done, and childhood emotional neglect, or lack of secure attachment, affects 38% of the U.S. population. So this is a large percentage of people that have this. And what she essentially explained is that when you don't feel securely attached somewhere, um, you never exactly feel a part of things, and you spend your life being adrift. So, if there hasn't been any major trauma, you may just kind of walk around feeling a little bit empty inside, or never quite like feeling like you belong to your own family. You never can quite like exhale in your own space. And, and, that, has, and, that,
0: like, has, and that has nothing to do with with the Hasidic community, has, with, the Hasidic, to with, do with the Hasidic, Hasidic community, or, or Judaism, right?
1: Correct. These, these are these are human interactions. And so, what? So the opposite. So, what does it, what does it mean to not feel comfortable in your own space? Be able to exhale. To be able to be yourself. To be able to feel like. You can be unconditionally loved without expectations of having to have a certain career if you're secular or having to do a certain mitzvah if you're religious. So um, these things can come around when a child tries to express a certain idea and they get shot down either with a negative comment or uncomfortable laughter. Um, If the parents are especially sort of guarded about themselves and who they are as people, the child may learn to mirror that and do that back Um, The way that this is dealt with, essentially, is inner child work, which we've been talking about a lot at Mako. We're not a mental health organization, but we do have an ongoing class to sort of familiarize our members with this concept. Essentially, what is missing from people um, when they lack these uh, good mother messages from their mother or their caretaker, because there could be another caretaker, they're not hearing things in their head like, I see you, I hear you, I love being with you, you can rest in me, I delight in you. So if, so there's a list within this book of Jasmine Lee Corey um, where you can read through this list and see if any of these good mother messages make you feel um, emotional. It's probably because you didn't get them and you're probably not giving them to your children. And I actually want to do a lot of work. Um, educating our community about this. I mean, really so educating I, the world about this because
0: so it's really I, important. i got to slow you down for a second because yeah. Macomb is, again, something that, that is now very familiar to me in this audience. Ket there is quite yeah. evident because it fits right in as you describe it, but, but you didn't give us exactly what Tikkun then is.
1: Tikkun. So then the third branch, Tikkun came out of Macomb, and we tried to make the, the name pretty, like, self-evident, but essentially hearing the Macomb members talk about the issues that they had faced well, first of all, ah, we so it's fixing issues
0: in our community. That's what it is, it's fixing yeah, issues it's, in our
1: exactly. community. Yeah, gotcha. exactly. Basically, a new sign-up would come in every couple of days, and when Netflix puts out a new film, right. we sometimes get several in a day. Right. Reading these heartbreaking narratives of what was lacking, what happened in the school, what happened you know, in the home. Um, first of all, to not go crazy, I felt like I had to just like, start writing things down to at least be able to keep a list of like what are we facing, what problems are coming to us. And as more and more cases came in, I saw that there are patterns here. And I think, um, well, there's two things. Number one, either saying a few bad apples may be understating it and not fair to their pain. Or a different way of stating it may be to say... There are a few bad apples, but some of those apples have leadership positions between schools and rabbinics. And even though it's just a few bad apples right. um, with powers of position, they could end but, up hurting people. But once so, yeah.
0: But with, but with the, but I don't, What do we, what do we call the people you deal with? Clients? I mean, what? How do we? How, how do so we, we, we
1: call them macho members? Yeah, okay. members. So your
0: members would agree with that or not? In other words, would members yeah. gener And I know that that you know there are exceptions to everything, but generally speaking, would the majority of them say to you? That that if not for this one or two one person or two people, you know, my life would have been very different. It would not have been yeah. as you know. I, I wouldn't be where I am right now if not for these bad apples.
1: So, yeah. So what I'll tell you is that um, number one, people don't always recognize the trauma that they went through. Number two, people are not always willing to admit it. So I um, I generally trust people like when they tell me at face value what they experienced. And what I've learned over time is that people either aren't aware of themselves or um, what they went through is so painful. They have to uh, sort of take pains to kind of protect it and not let it be known. But as we started talking about these good mother messages and childhood emotional neglect, we have a chat that probably has a WhatsApp group over 150 people. The members that have come forward, first of all, a whole bunch of them have, um, you know, parents with narcissistic personality disorder. Um, and, you know, um, what's the other one, borderline personality disorder. So when I started seeing members talk about the number of parents that have personality disorders, that actually kind of, like, shocked me. That wasn't even molestation or, you know, uh, physical or abuse or that sort of thing. That was just the number of parents that have, um, the number of members with parents personality disorders is a really high number. Again, it's not because this is the Hasidic community. It's because this is the type of people that are being pushed out. But when this topic of childhood emotional neglect and good mother messages came out to the group, the number of people that started to say it resonated with them, the number of people started to get this book and say, like, it was so painful they had to throw it against the but, wall because it told their story but, but in the they, book. But they have, um, but, I, I, will, yeah.
0: no, I, I apologize for interrupting, but they. Have, no this is why our conversations in person are a million times better, although this one, frankly, is great. Uh, yeah. But, but if, if that's the case, I'd have to assume that a good percentage of them you know, you know, understand that logically speaking or objectively speaking, it's hard to lay the blame at those 100%. parents, right? Some of them just well, don't—they yeah. ha- don't have the skills to be able to. You know, nobody gets a parenting license, and and it's uh-huh. you know, and, and many parents would say, "Oh my gosh!" You know, the famous thing a parent will always say, "Oh, I made all my mistakes on my first kid." They're parents who make mistakes on all their kids. <laughs>
1: Well, so, first of all, the Hasidic community is nearly 100% survivors and descendants of survivors. Right. That's the first thing that we have to keep in mind. If the general population has 38% of people, lack secure attachment. And, by the way, in the general population, you see now, we see now people that are running from their identities. They're doing all sorts of ways of kind of um, uh, rebelling and, and doing sort of outlandish things that sort of, Uh, deny where they come from. I believe that all of that fits into lack of secure attachment if you don't feel like you come from where you belong from and so you want to be different in some way. But yes, if you take a population that literally went through crazy trauma, had this PTSD, no way to process it, you better believe that now there's going to be generations of people that have their emotions all bottled up don't know how to express it to their children. Right. Don't teach their children how to emotionally regulate. So yes, yeah, so so, this is a problem in larger society. Right. So if, so if you of-
0: right. So if you were giving this seminar, you know, which by the way, it sounds like you're on the road to starting to give seminars on this topic. But if you were, yeah. if you if you were, yeah. if you were giving a seminar, you know, with with you know, and a mixed crowd, Jews, non-Jews, professionals from around the country, they may turn to you and say, "Wait a second, Allison. Then why don't you have more members from the more liberal part?" of the Jewish community or more the liberal part of the Jewish Orthodox community? And that would be your answer, meaning the percentages, the trauma, the, the, the more extreme special circumstances in the Hasidic community? How would you address it?
1: Yeah, so what I would say is that um, Malcolm started because a couple of ex-Hasidim came to us and asked for help. Right. Um, I would say what the thing that makes Malcolm specific as opposed to any other type of trauma or lack of um, secure attachment of any other human being is that They didn't just grow up in families missing this, where we would find in other communities. The schooling that they went to taught a very extreme and negative and shameful and fearful Judaism. So we actually have a job that's twofold with them, um, making them aware of the pain that they went through and helping them understand that that's not Judaism, and then actually re-educating them on what Orthodox Judaism is. If somebody grew up modern Orthodox, likely they went to a reasonable school and heard positive messages about Hashem and mitzvot, The home may have been abusive. That's probably, uh, you know, uh, is connected to why they left. They don't want to be like where they came from, but they grew up with a positive Judaism within their schools. Um, For Mako members, it's twofold it's the uh, extreme interpretation of Judaism, which, again, is not all Hasidic, it's not all Yeshivish, it's not all Chabad. It's the schools they went to, the teachers they came across that gave them these more negative messages. Um, And then it's uh, the home life as well. And on top of all that, This is the stuff that makes the news this is the stuff that um you know and this is really our our original mission was to reverse negative associations around orthodox jews and when they've learned such negative ideas about orthodoxy this really gets to the heart of why we were founded
0: jews make news especially when it's stories that are extreme or you know of, of fascination to the general audience that's for sure allison joseph is with us jew in the city Ah, uh, listen. I, I, you know, I, 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 first of all, great appreciation to you in general, and um, uh, the fact that people associate uh, you with us is always a big blessing for us. But uh, the least we could do is just remind people, and I'll do it. You don't have to do it. Is to remind people that one of the hardest things to do is to fundraise. For a project, it's really easy to fundraise for a building, relatively speaking, and it's easy to fundraise for something that um, you know has a special designation or a specific event. Much much easier when you're when you're trying to fundraise for all these general um, uh, pursuits uh, that a great organization like Jew in the City is pursuing through Makom and Keter and Tikkun, uh, in order to be out there and do what's right and represent us well. It's very very difficult to do so. Allison, I would assume on the Jew in the City website there are uh, there are at least one, if not multiple, opportunities for people to support your work.
1: There is. There's a donate button up in the top right. We have a pop-up that's coming up now. Actually, August is Changemaker Month, and what we're asking everybody that's following and is a fan, put your money where your mouth is, and everyone has a different means, but we're asking whatever you could give on a monthly level. If it's a dollar, if it's $50, that will help us continue. You know, we have an ad coming out today that says you give seventeen ninety nine a month this place, Netflix, to support content that, you (laughs) know, defames our community. Could you give that much to an organization that is telling a different story? I just want to say a couple more things in terms of like big projects we have upcoming for catcher. We recently discovered that the Muslim community has something called the Hollywood Bureau of Muslim pack. They have relationships with literally every major studio and network. They get paid to create likable and three dimensional Muslim characters. So we've been told for years, you can't do that. Hollywood is all Jewish. But we decided, no, we're going to. We're going to say that Jews are being beaten on the street. We insist on the treatment of any other endangered minority. And if the Hollywood execs want to represent their Hebrew school high holiday life and they say that that's the character they know, that's fine. But if they're touching our community, they must go to an insider. So we're putting together a board of celebrities and Hollywood insiders to, God willing, um, establish JITC's Hollywood Bureau. Make meetings with these big networks. So that's one thing on one end. Just make the sure. Markham just side, make. Yes.
0: Just make sure you're not too pro-Israel. That'll kill the whole project.
1: <laughs> exactly right. We can't talk about that. That we're Israel-loving Jews. makham continues to grow, and on Tikkun on that side. we thank God we've had some exciting successes there, which you can read about on Jew in the City. But our newest project is a school project. I discovered in the last couple of months there are a lot of hat schools that are not nonprofits. They are for-profit. Um, you know. Uh, uh, businesses run by one person. Right. Um, and, you know, knowing what I know about our community, knowing about, what I know about running a non where you have accountability, transparency, a board, um, this is how you keep a place safe. And I believe that the reason things are set up as a for-profit, you know, privately owned entity is just because it's how it's always been done since the shetful and life continues. And what we realize is that in, until we get a basic foundation of accountability and transparency, kids can be in danger because we have stories at Mako where there are creepy principals that never quite broke the law but did some really awful things to children. And nobody could stop them because they ran the school. So we're building a kit right now to help for profit schools become nonprofits with accountability and transparency. And so before we get to all the other changes in schools that we want to make to make them the healthiest environment for children, the first thing we want to create is a toolkit for transition. So the basic foundation has accountability and transparency. Then the goal will be to spread that to any school um, that doesn't have that t- sort of setup. We're getting tremendous response from leadership and people within these organizations that deal with schools and deal with you know this community. Uh, we're not doing this all on our own, but we are sort of being that nag, that nudge to say like we got to do this, we got to build this, we got to execute this. And I think that's the missing link. A lot of people want to do what's right, but they don't have the bandwidth to actually dream up the plan and execute it. And we are being the middlemen to make the thing between the dream and the execution happen. And so when you become a change maker. Um, you can help these dreams become reality.
0: Someone else might joke, uh, have someone else start your car, frankly. Be careful out there uh, because I, I'm I'm somewhat familiar with the category that you're referring to when it comes to the schools, and it is a very, very arduous and uh, sensitive pursuit that you're undertaking.
1: I hear that. Um, And what I will tell you is that, um, A, I think part of what motivates me is that uh, I don't exactly know what I'm getting into, so I'm (laughs) stupid enough to jump in. Which, by the way, if I understood what Makam was going to be about, I would have been far too scared (laughs) to actually do such a thing. I only discovered sort of the heaviness of all these issues after we were too far gone to turn back. And so I'm doing this. It's very much sort of like, you know, a Nasa Vinishma type of idea. I'm not really an expert in any of these areas. I always had a knack for explaining orthodoxy in a positive way. That is something that, you know, I could do naturally. These other areas have really been more like, if we're the Kiddush Hashem brand and we tell the world how great it is to be from, how can we not fix these problems? That's right. really the way that I've approached Rabbanim and leadership when I've gone to some of these different issues. I don't want to be a liar. I've told the world how great it is to be from and what great people we are. And if this, this, and this is going on, then I'm not telling the truth, and I I can't bear to do that. And so that's actually been a really motivating factor. And so we will keep doing that. We will keep davening, But it's really the support of you know the people out there that are are inspired by these projects. That's how we'll we'll grow because we will need you know a serious amount of revenue to really make these things happen.
0: And, and you've uh, and you've had the best of the other world. It's not like you're yes, and you're, I you're correct.
1: I. I and here's the thing, because I had secure attachment growing up, I never actually wanted to, like, throw away my past life. I brought my whole family with me, everybody right. from room today. I-, I cook fake tray food every night for <laughs> dinner because I love my childhood recipes. And I would say even on the Kiroo side, to be honest, I think we have to consider this um, in the world of Kiru are our... our people that were being makariv are they throwing away their past identities that's unhealthy right. or are they incorporating them in are they coming to us in a healthy position if we're right. bringing more people with lack of secure attachment into the community we're only bringing the next generation of mako members in essentially because their children their children come to us
0: you must love the beyond burger because you make it into a cheeseburger and everything
1: i like the impossible burger better <laughs> but i will eat both and i really do love them and i saw somewhere that they may be able to make pig kosher and it may be a sign that mashiach is coming and i would agree
0: Um, (laughs) I hear that. Uh, there are a couple of things that, um, (laughs) that I've got to, uh, close with here. Um, I'll circle back in a minute to, to my unorthodox life, because I think there is one point I want to make that I'm curious about your reaction, but you did write an article and we've talked about this before because you always talk about the, uh, the modesty issue and how the, um, uh, the choice for you know how modest a a woman wants to dress, whether it be in Hollywood, sports, etc. You you address the Olympics. W- what horrified me about that uh, article, frankly, was I didn't realize that all these immodest outfits, these immodest uniforms, are regulated. That there's an actual, the Olympics, yeah. Oh, yeah, Olymp- yeah, an Olympic committee that requires a woman. Who's part of a specific? I I frankly thought the reason they're dressed that way is because, you know, swimming wise, sports wise, volleyball wise, track wise, they felt this is the best result, you know, the best thing to to, to wear or not wear in order to have the best time, the best chance to win, et cetera. But this is regular. They won't let you on the field if you you don't dress a certain way. That's what outraged me about the whole thing.
1: Right. So, so um, when I wrote the article originally, it did not have the rule book rules about uh, leotards and handball uniforms. But are the, uh, the editor? Um, it was published in the Washington Post and Religion News Service. Um, She said, let's add the exact rules in. Yes. So on one hand, in sports themselves, a lot of these rules are, are dictated. But I will say that I think we should not discount the messaging that comes from marketing and comes from seeing basically every attractive woman in the world as you're growing up in secular society. I got messages very early on as a secular woman, you know, that who was slim, that it was sort of my responsibility to show my body off. That they were, somehow I owed that to the world as a sign of being young and fit, that I should show my body off to the world. And if you look at how your average boy or man is dressed, they're essentially covering upper arm, upper leg, and everything in between. Really all the halachic points of what a woman is supposed to cover. Right. And I think um, with our term, the skin gap, in this op-ed that I wrote about the skin gap, that it's at the Olympics, and it's being recognized at the Olympics, but it's actually everywhere else, too. Even if it's not technically on the rule books, when we go to the store and we see certain options with less fabric for women, and we open up a magazine or we see you know, any type of media, walk down the street, it's weird for a woman to wear more clothes. Even today, I will tell you, if I look at like a from wedding and I see how I dress in our community, the women wearing just as much clothing as the men, it still looks a little bit weird to me because what my eye is trained to for the rest of society is that women's bodies are exposed at a formal affair. Right. You know. And so until we can start to change the expectation in what girls and women um, feel like they're supposed to wear and show off, the skin gap, which is this imbalance of expectations, which makes girls and women feel like their bodies are on display, it will persist. And what I believe it leads to is a feeling of body dissatisfaction, because if your body's on display, you have to constantly be worried about how does it look? How does it look compared to yesterday? What is it turning into tomorrow? And if a woman's sort of greatest thing they contribute is their body, then essentially there's an expiration date on a woman's usefulness. And the skin gap closes if a woman exceeds a certain number in age or pounds.
0: Yeah, understood. Uh, you know, I, I, look, um, my wife and I have raised two daughters, and uh, well, this is somewhat related to what you're saying, but one of the frustrating things to me is that um, uh, the, the more—how do I put this? Uh, the more um, one explores the Jewish community, the more one realizes that these are the only female role models for our daughters. These are the only— yeah females that are featured in uh in print ads in photography in videos etc and i and i wonder if you have a a a a public opinion on this that that's one of the reasons why i have always felt that orthodox publications should go out of their way to print pictures of women in our community dressed properly who are real role models for our daughters
1: a hundred percent. A hundred percent. We need to see healthy examples of, you know, the possibilities that are out there and not have just one small idea of what we must inform
0: to. <laughs> my, my wife said to me that she was reading an article on Shabbos about a Rebbitzin, and the picture in the article was her husband. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I, I mean, give me a break. Finally, circling way back to our original topic, and I apologize for all the time, and after Sukkot, you must come in here for a full face-to-face conversation where we will discuss uh, both kosher cheeseburgers and non-kosher cheeseburgers, because, of course, one of the things I always <laughs> ask you is why on earth would someone from your background uh, want to become Orthodox? And I, and I, I believe you me, I'll be asking you that for the next 20 years, hopefully, like I have <laughs> for the last 15, 20 years. Uh, the last thing is I, I, I feel bad for people like you when it comes to the situation of the series My Unorthodox Life, and I'll tell you why. Your your best argument is the one people take least seriously. Because I honestly do believe I think you had three arguments in the TMZ piece, so all presented really well, of course, not criticizing that. But I think the best one, logically and from people in our uh, community, is the one that it's completely out of context, is the one that you you have no clue. And I by the way, I'm talking about the subjects in the document in the series and the people uh, you know, watching. You have no clue what our community is really like. You cannot even understand how the restrictions of our community uh, um, uh, teamed up with the positive aspects of our community create such a wonderful atmosphere. You know, in most cases, and I think the out of context argument is never taken seriously for a variety of reasons. I think the media, you know, poops it in every which way. Shape and form, especially when it comes to accusations against people, they never ever uh, consider. it when someone says you need context, that you know you do need context. And can look cancel culture is a perfect example of that, right? And you, you, you don't need context. Um, and and I I think your most potent argument, unfortunately, is the one they take least seriously. What do you think?
1: I mean, I think, um, I think people that support the show will find every reason to support it, and people that are against the show will uh, you know, find different reasons to be against it. And it seems like there's actually a lot of people that like the show. Um, my friend, Mine Bialik, just posted my TMZ article, and I've been hearing people say, oh, no one's taking the show, so seriously, no one's watching it. That's not true. A lot of her fans, and she is very pro-Jewish on her platform, a lot of her fans were like, this show is amazing. It's about an empowered woman. So um, I have relatives they're, they're,
0: who've watched it multiple yeah. times. Of course wow. people are obsessed with it. And I can't blame them. If They enjoy it. They enjoy the content, even if it's all fiction. Oh, it,
1: it could I, all, I, it, I think, the, I think the most important thing, really, is that um, restrictions have to be choice-based restrictions. So, yes, there's so much positivity and beauty and meaning. But when we restrict ourselves, we have to be the ones, you know, dressing modestly. We need to be the ones sending ourselves to dominion. We need to be the ones fasting. If, we, if any Jew is living under duress where they don't feel free to be able to choose to do or not do, that becomes an abusive situation. Those are the types of cases that we see. And so as long as we are freely choosing, you know, a person can choose to uh, run a marathon and do what it takes to uh, regiment themselves to be able to have such an achievement. The person can decide that they're not eating healthfully and decide to make different choices in what they eat. We understand that we can have a goal that we think is better for ourselves and it will require us to restrain ourselves in some way to have that goal. And somehow that same um, idea is not understood, that if we have a spiritual goal, we may uh, restrain ourselves and restrict ourselves in order to achieve a greater good by the end of it, um, which is very sad. And But, of course, it has to come from choice.
0: Yeah, understood. Well said. Easier to fundraise for a building than for a project, right?
1: <laughs> it is. It is. But you know what? Um, what I will tell you um, is that every time Netflix puts out another one of these shows, I feel like more and more it's galvanizing uh, the community. And we've been doing this as Jew in the city since 2007. This is not some new campaign that's right. come out in light of this show. Right. This has been the drum that we've beating. We've been dealing with, you know, the ex-Haredi crisis for years now already. Um, and so I think if people are seeing more and more that this, these are issues that are bothering them, they were filming three other um, ex-Orthodox shows after Unorthodox. One of them, a uh, fourth one is My Unorthodox Life. There are at least three more coming out that we know about, right. plus a young adult novel that is coming out as a movie. There is money in the genre. This is not stopping anytime soon but we're going to do our best to fight it and we hope that you know listeners will help us
0: a hundred percent I hope so as well go to jew in the city uh, go to the jew in the city website everybody and uh, donate and uh, support the great work of uh, Jew in the city including uh, a Keter tiku and all these different facets that uh, that Jew in the city is um, is um, helping to uh helping to um, uh, promote and fix and whatever does need promotion and fixing in our community. Um, Allison, I take this opportunity to wish you a happy, healthy, and sweet New Year, continued good luck, and I hope that uh, uh, once the holidays uh, come to their conclusion, we'll be able to get together and uh, and do this in person. I think the uh, audience is very appreciative of the work that you do.
1: Thank you so much, and same to you and yours.
0: Thanks so much. Allison Josephs, Jew in the City Speaks is our program every single Thursday at 10 a.m. Eastern time here at the Nahum Segal Network. Jew in the city, as you heard Allison say, in existence since 2007. Doing amazing work, including all this uh, uh, work that she did in the, in the aftermath of uh, My Unorthodox Life, the Netflix series. And as you heard, a lot of other things going on. A lot of other things going on. And <laughs> she has spent a lot of time trying to understand the psychology uh, behind what so many are going through in our community. Tuesday morning broadcast, plenty more coming up on JM in the AM.